Hello, everybody. This is Aaron Percival, a.k.a. Corporal Hicks. And this is Adam Zeller, a.k.a. Ridgetop. And you're listening to or watching the 146th episode of the Alien vs. Predator Galaxy podcast. Well, it's fair to say that Alien 3 has seen a reevaluation within the eyes of the fandom over the 30 years since its release. And I think it would also be fair to say that is largely due to Charles de Lazarica's assembly cut that debuted in the Alien Quadrilogy in the early 2000s. That reception amongst the fandom is something that will never change the experiences of the people who worked on the film. There is a reason that Alien 3's development is a regular appearance in curriculums at film schools. It was a lesson in how not to make a film. Alien 3 is notorious for the amount of writers it went through, racing to meet a prematurely set release date, and Rex Pickett was one of those writers, who was picked by David Fincher to rewrite longtime Alien series producers Walter Hill and David Geiler. For a month, Rex Pickett found himself embroiled in that hellish film development. Better known now as the author of Sideways, a novel that Alexander Payne adapted into a film and Rex himself adapted for stage, Rex Pickett's involvement in Alien 3's development is often boiled down to two simple comments, doing a sneaky last-minute rewrite that pissed off Walter Hill and David Geiler, and a critique of their script that really pissed them off. Rex was apparently let go as a result. Both statements are true, but there's a whole lot more to it. A whole lot of work from Rex Pickett and David Fincher, and a lot of Hollywood politicking. Rex kindly agreed to join us to discuss his experiences working alongside David Fincher on Alien 3, and we hope you enjoy this enlightening first-hand perspective on writing Alien 3. All right, so first off, Rex, we'd just like to thank you for taking the time to come and talk to us about your experience working on Alien 3. Always appreciate it when people who were involved in the franchise do come and take some time out of the day to talk to a couple of nerds on the internet. But before we do go Alien, before we talk Alien, could you tell our audience a little bit about Rex Pickett outside of your involvement with the series? You know, who are you, what do you do, and where do your interests lie? Well, I went to the University of California in San Diego right down the road here, actually. I actually got into both film and writing. And in fact, I did a special projects major, which is my diploma read specializing in contemporary literary and film criticism and creative writing. And literally, that's who I am today, years later. Went to LA, got married, and she, her name is Barbara Schock, and she'll be a a major character in this interview. And we made two independent feature films, took nine years out of our our lives back in the analog days for those who might even remember the analog days, strips of film and mag. And they were massive road movies. And then, you know, we started to kind of part company. And then I, you know, I just, I kind of went back into writing and was writing scripts and other things. And, you know, because the second feature film, we sold it to Island Pictures, but it didn't do well at the box office. Writing in the 90s was a horrible decade for me. And in fact, I'm writing an autobiography that's in three volumes called My Life on Spec. In fact, what we're going to talk about today is going to be a major part of volume two, by the way. And then I rebounded with novels. And uh, I wrote a novel that didn't get published, but it got me a good agent. And that led to Sideways. And most people probably know Sideways. It's a novel. That's a long story, how that novel became a movie. I mean, a really long story, hits or misses or whatever. So it's been an up and down life, to say the least. I've never really worked a real job in my life. I've made my living as a writer. I've lived by hook or crook. I take risks. I live on the edge. I live on the precipice. And then I had a huge success with Sideways. I mean, it you know, everybody turned it down. Over 230 publishers turned it down. My, my agent called me up one day and said, Rex, let's face it, Sideways is roadkill. He told me that. But, you know, Alexander Payne, who directed it and, and adapted it, you know, how it got to him is a long story, but it changed my life. So here we are today, 
and I've written three, uh, two sequels. I now go to New Zealand to write a fourth. They haven't made a movie sequel yet. We did Sideways the Play, which I wrote, and it was a huge hit. We also have Sideways the Musical, which I also wrote. Not the music, but I wrote all the lyrics, and it's based on my play. Sideways the Play is currently on a national tour in Spain in two languages, so that's kind of huge. So, you know, honestly, I'm, I guess, you know, I'm an artist, I'm a writer, and I've written in all mediums from screenplays. Initially, I've made films, actually started out as a poet and self-published two books of poetry, all the way through to novels, to plays, and now I've written a libretto. Maybe next will be a, I don't know, a car manual. (laughs) So a very careered writer then. Yeah. So yeah, I am. I've written, I've written a lot, but right now my real focus is novels. So there's as I point out, there's my current novel, The Archivist, you know, which is a huge novel, 641 pages, and it's an eight-episode limited series, or it could be a feature film. And I'm very, very happy. That was a lot of work and very personal to me. And I guess I'll just end with the Rex Pickett papers have been taken by my alma mater right down the street. So I left a long time ago to go to USC film school. I dropped out with maybe five or six boxes, and I returned with 50 boxes of writings and film, no kids, no pets, no nothing, five boxes, 50 boxes. That's my life. And it's all installed at Geisel Library at the University of California in San Diego. If you want to read rejection letters from Sideways, please come on down. And if you want, if you're feeling miserable about your writing career, just read those. <laughs> you know, they would be sent to my agent, you know, Mitchell Waters. Dear Mitchell, why did you send me this total piece of shit? Blah, blah, blah. Senior editor, Penguin, whatever, random. Seriously. Yeah, it can be a grind as a creative. You just keep keep going against the wall until something really works out. People always ask me, you know, not to be facetious, but they ask me writing advice. And I say, how low can you go and still turn on your laptop? And and a lot of people, you know, I meet a lot of people that they do it as an avocation. And that's not the way to do it. It has to come first before everything. And, you know, if you want to live a certain lifestyle, but be a writer, you better be the writer first and then then try to live the lifestyle, but not live the lifestyle. And then, oh, by the way, I want to be a writer or a filmmaker. It doesn't work that way. And you, it has to come first. And, and then we could get into a conversation about where content is today, but we won't because we have, we're going to go back three decades to what was a, one of the most fascinating times for me. You know, and, and this should go to Alien too, because it is, you know, it's science fiction, obviously. And, and I don't write science fiction. And I write real characters who are, you know, if you, you know, I'm sure you've seen sideways, they're very three-dimensional characters. They're drawn from my personal life. The archivist is very personal, even though there are four main women characters. It's a very personal novel. And when we get into Alien 3, you'll see that maybe I also try to draw on some things there too. But, you know, also as a writer, you don't always get the luxury of being able to write whatever you want to write. You have to take jobs. And that will will go to what we're going to talk about. But that's, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm in a really good place. I'm going to New Zealand to write Sideways New Zealand. And hopefully maybe this time there'll be a sequel. And and let's see if the musical goes goes up. You know, it's, uh, it's been a wacky couple of years, as you know, you know, with COVID. Do you do much reading yourself as well? I read every night at least two or three hours. You know, I have to read. I don't. I'm fully aware of the perils of these screens. And, uh, you know, when I write a 641-page novel, when I was... 18, 19, 20, that wouldn't have daunted me at all. But to the youth today, they're probably just like, no, I don't care if it's brilliant, forget it. I'm not reading it. When I was 19 years old, I took a couple quarters off from my university and I had some money from a car accident that wasn't my fault. And I bought the entire collected works of Carl Jung, all 20 volumes. And I sat down in an apartment. 
I had no TV, of course, no internet, no computers, no video games, nothing. Maybe an AMFM boombox. And I, I read I read six hours a day every day for six months until I finished. And I and I didn't buy two books. I bought all twenty. I wanted to stare at me up from the wall, and I wanted to demand of something from me. And if I bought one or two, then like you know, it's kind of like not really being committed to a relationship, you know. And so when you say reading to me, you know, I've I've, I've also seen many many movies in, in the theaters, but I hardly go anymore. Theaters are better than ever. I love digital so much. I am not a Luddite. I would never want to go back to the analog celluloid days in a million fucking years. Digital is so much better on every level. Post-production is so much easier. And there's nothing. And these theaters are all screening rooms. They're better than screening rooms at the major studios. But to me, there's almost nothing to see. I watch films on my computer. So I, re- I read a lot. And I read contemporary fiction. I read difficult fiction. I don't read mainstream stuff. I don't read commercial fiction at all. And I don't read, I do like sci-fi, some sci-fi. In fact, I had dinner with a friend the other night. She says, Rex, you should write a sci-fi. <laughs> <laughs> She's in her 30s. She goes, my generation's all reading that. You know, you, you're such a good writer. You, you'd, you should write a great sci-fi novel. So we started to have an, I had an idea about something. But um, anyway, um, lately, actually, close to where you are is Kevin Barry. I don't know if you know him, but he's just such a great writer. And his short stories are wonderful. He's Irish. I highly recommend them, you know, and I'm reading this young Chilean author, Paulina Flores, a short story collection called Humiliation. Fantastic. And I just, I bounce around to different stuff, but I try to read contemporary stuff. Although sometimes I'll dip back into the past, you know, and read something, you know, that I I missed. There's just so many books out there, but I have to read a couple hours every night because I need to be, I need to be engrossed in language. I need to keep language going. You know, you always see an adverb you want to borrow or, or something, you know, and I take notes down. But yeah, I read a lot and I and I, I consider reading it's the one thing. Again, I'm not a Luddite, you know, I'm not against the tech world at all in any way, shape, or form, especially when it comes to film. It's just it's in one way it's made film better, in one way it made it's made it worse. In my day, I mean I've said that digital, the good news is it gives everybody a chance now. Yeah, it's very accessible now yeah. just to make your own film. Back in the day, as soon as you put sixteen or thirteen negative in the ca- thirty-five negative in the camera, it was expensive. And if it wasn't working, what are you going to do? You're going to, you know, many, many student films were never finished because of that. Now you can just erase it and go out and shoot it again. But the bad news about digital is it gives everybody a chance. Yeah. There's a lot more stuff out there to, to sit through. Way more. It's a tsunami of content. Everybody is a content creator, but who is a content consumer today? You know, there used to be a day of gatekeepers, as you know, if you go back 30 years ago, publishing, film, whatever. And that wasn't always fair. It was nepotistic and we could get on about it. But boy, I almost wish there were gatekeepers today. But man, the, <laughs> the floodgates have just opened. I, I do think a lot about where content is going, though. You know, if you take a great novel that I read when I was also about 19 or 20, War and Peace, it's 1,500 pages. If nobody is reading that novel because they can't access it, you know, um, because they just have no attention span, because you have to read two hours every day to stay in that novel. You, you, would, you would lose, you'd have to go back to the beginning every time. That novel ceases to exist. If nobody reads it, all it is, is a relic in a repository. That's all it is. And that's sad to me because I, I don't think that anything replaces what reading does for the mind. And there are studies to show that you go into a high beta state when you're reading because only your mind is turning that page. When you're watching a film, the film moves of its own volition. You can pause it, but it moves of its own volition. Your mind isn't turning the frames. And the same with any any other content, but not reading. Only your brain turns that page. 
And in that you get growth and you develop, you know, powers of abstraction and, and other things that I don't know. I just, I feel sorry in some ways for the youth because these devices are so addictive and they're, and they're wonderfully addictive. They're great tools for a writer. Let's say I'm, I have a, I'm doing a road novel and there's a place I haven't been to. I just go Google it. <laughs> and, you know, I could, I could write travel journalism and never leave this place, but I feel I don't know, the, the way in which these devices are drawing us in, and I don't want to get on a sermonizing thing here, <laughs> and, and, and they're doing it because they make Facebook makes money by your attention. They're buying your attention, and they'll do anything. They're shameless in how they'll hold your attention. And, you know, I'm a victim of it, too. I bounce around the links and other stuff. So that's why at night I try to shut it all down and try to really read literature. And there's something pure and beautiful about it. Or see a great film and just let it flow across me. And that experience just can't be duplicated by the internet. Yeah, that's probably a good habit to have. It's just something, be it a, a movie or a book that keeps your attention span on one thing so it's not just bouncing around. And I know I know for Aaron and I, the Alien and, and Predator novels have been like core to being engaged with the franchise, especially when there's like lull spots and in between things. But honestly, beyond that, like some of the best work we've seen in the franchises has been in the books, honestly. But before we get into the wild days of Alien 3, we have a little tradition on our podcast, and that is we ask all of our guests about their first experiences with the series. So do you remember your first time you encountered H.R. Giger's iconic Alien, and what are your thoughts on the series in general? It's funny you bring up H.R. Giger because I wasn't I mean, I've heard the name, but, you know, my first experience was going in and seeing the Ridley Scott film, the very first Alien film. So Giger, obviously, what? He he was the creature guy who created the monster? Mm-hmm. It's creature effects on the first film. Yeah. So you're going to, you know, I, I don't want your audience to turn away because I do have a pretty interesting story. But, uh, you know, I used to see I used to see everything and I used to see everything in the theater. And, you know, even if it wasn't a genre that I liked or whatever, and I went and saw it. First of all, it has an unbelievable cast as, as far as as far as a sci-fi movie goes. And I don't mean to damn it with faint praise by ghettoizing it you know, to a genre. But I think it's one of the best sci-fi movies I've ever seen in my entire life. The first one, it holds off on the suspense. It allows you to get emotionally invested in the characters. And, and yet, you know, and there's also something claustrophobic about that ship. And it, it's brilliant. You know, it's a brilliant conceit, you know, from a from a Hollywood pitch standpoint you know, trapped on this spaceship, but there's something that's going wrong. Where, where do you go? How do you escape? It's brilliant. You know, and so I saw the movie and I thought it was, I thought it was a mind-blowingly great movie. I really did. I have to say when I saw Aliens, I didn't like it. I thought it was a hardware movie. I thought it was all about firepower. I know it's James Cameron and he's gone on Titanic and Avatar and all that crap, but I, I just wasn't a big fan. I actually liked Terminator, his first film, because I thought it was a good action picture. It had me driving, but it just looked like just in, in all my work, there's very little violence. There's very little violence in my work. And that one was just, just seemed like it was full on attack mode, firepower. Maybe I should revisit it. And I'll be honest with you, for this podcast, I did not go back and look at Alien 3 or Aliens or Alien or Alien Predator. I haven't looked at any of them at all. But the first movie, that was my first. I, mean, I probably didn't even, I knew who Geiger was. I just didn't know his work, you know, really. And I just thought everything in that film was brilliant. No arguments there. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree. Have you seen the the Scott prequels at all? No. Yeah, those are those are interesting ones. <laughs> yeah, that that isn't quite as universally loved as as <laughs> Alien is, but that that's a whole other topic. They did do some bold things, but yeah, they are controversial. So 
obviously we're here to talk about Alien Three. That is that's why you're on. That's why I, I I sought you out because Alien Three is hitting its thirtieth anniversary, and I sought you out because you were obviously one of the writers on it. But your time on that production is often boiled down to two statements. But there's actually something of a saga <laughs> to the time you spent working alongside David Fincher on Alien Three. So. The logical place to start is right at the start. So could you tell us a little about how you first became involved with that production? So as I said earlier, um, uh, I got married and we made two films together. And Barbara Shock acted, she acted, but she also produced the films. Went on to win an Academy Award for a short film that I wrote after Alien. But after a second film bombed, she needed work. We needed work in, and she supported me. So we knew, she knew through a close friend, Michael London. Michael London was a VP in charge of production at Fox under Joe Roth, which was the regime that produced Alien 3. And as the story goes, Joe Roth was on a plane and on that plane in first class was Vincent Ward, who was this, I guess he's a New Zealand director. And he made this, this kind of sci-fi film that's all dark and gloomy and whatever. I saw it. It's, you know, it's cripplingly boring. But, you know, if you like that kind of thing. And he pitched to Joe Roth, as the story goes, monks on a wooden planet. And they did a deal on the plane for Alien 3. It's funny they wouldn't go back to Dan O'Bannon. You know, maybe he, they weren't going to pay him enough or maybe they wanted a fresh look or whatever. There's a lot of politics involved with writing. And so Vincent Ward needs an assistant. He's new. He's in L.A. He's given offices. And so Barbara Schock is assigned as his assistant. And now they start to develop the monks on the wooden planet that Ripley is going to crash onto. Well, thank God it's 30 years later because I couldn't tell you this 20 years ago, but now I don't care. You know, Barbara and I are we're married. You know, she's feeding me screenplays. She's feeding me drafts from the lot at 20th Century Fox. Think about I got the inside scoop. And I'm going, this is a ridiculous screenplay. This is so bad. And apparently they had tried, maybe Dan, you guys would know, because you guys you know, are such alien nerd geeks, whatever, and, and you know it, but they had commissioned a number of screenplays. And these are six-figure deals, by the way. you know. And maybe Dan O'Bannon wrote one and they didn't like it and someone else wrote one and whatever. I can't remember. They're different writers. So maybe they thought Vincent Ward had like a really fresh take on it. And I don't know if Vincent Ward, I can't remember if he was the one writing the scripts or if they brought in other writers, but now they're following his vision. Monks on a wooden planet, okay? And the scripts are coming out, they're terrible. But meanwhile, you have to understand there's a pay or play deal with Sigourney Weaver involved. It's her third film. And it was the biggest amount uh, that they'd ever paid a female actor ever. And pay or play, I think you know what that means. If you don't play by this date, you pay, okay? So without really having a fully realized script, they shift the production to London and Pinehurst Studio. Pinewood. I'm sorry, Pinehurst. Jesus, that's a golf course. Pinewood Studios. And, you know, they start, you know, they have all these departments and special effects and, and production design, you know, whatever. And they're building according to this script. They're, the script is the blueprint, as you've heard many times. The screenplay is a blueprint. But meanwhile, Vincent Ward is like, he, he's losing control of himself and of life. He's snorting coke like crazy. I have the inside. Barbara goes to London to be his assistant, his Uber assistant. And he's just completely losing it. And she called Michael London and, and said he's losing it. <laughs> and they fired him the next day. And she didn't do it for me or anything. She did it for the project. She just literally believed that he had no 
idea what he was doing. And you think the studio, it's a huge studio. You think there'd be some oversight on this. You'd be surprised how much they just sort of let go. Oh, he's the genius. Maybe he's got, there's a method to his madness or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And they did, they've done it with Terry Gilliam and, and other people, you know, and, and sometimes you get genius and other times you get crap, you know, they fired him. They, they took Barbara's story and then they hired David Fincher. And I don't know what the process was. So David Fincher is 25 years old. He's never made a narrative film in his life. He's never made a narrative short. He's a huge music video director and commercial director. He had done all the Madonna videos, for example. But, you know, those show a real visual style. And they think if we can match him with a good writer, he's also, he's got this, he's very cocky. And I wouldn't call him arrogant, but hes he definitely is a man of conviction. He, he has a lot of confidence. He's only 25 years old. And Barbara stays on as his assistant because I think Fincher really recognized that, you know, she produced two feature films. She knew a lot about story and narrative, okay? But Fincher isn't in to monks on a wooden planet. No, that isn't David Fincher if you've seen, you know, seven <laughs> other films. He's not into monks. So no no offense to the to the uh, to those people the monks out there <laughs> yeah to the monks out there or whatever so he goes no prisoners on a planet and they're in a prison a penal colony so now they're going to but David is not a writer and to this day he's never been a writer and and I I appreciate that from him that he he knows his strong suit so they hire Larry Ferguson and he's a big six figure writer and they bring him in at, I think, 400K. This is a lot of money in 89. But meanwhile, they're on a crunch. They've just fired a director. They're at Pinewood Studios. <laughs> They've got creature departments. And now all the wooden stuff is just thrown out the door. Whatever they've created that's wood and drawings and whatever, it's prisoners now in a penal comm. These people are going crazy, by the way, out at Pinewood, you know. Anyway, um, Larry Ferguson is, you know, is quite a character. And, you know, he was going to give them one month for, I think it was 100000 a week. And, you know, he wanted hookers around the clock and the whole thing, you know, we won't go into that, but it's all a true story. And, you know, actually, and again, I'm reading all the scripts and I'm following it with Barbara. I mean, we're talking pretty much every day and she's in London. And actually his script wasn't that bad, given the new direction that Fincher had dictated. It wasn't, it was actually a readable script, as I recall. Again, it's been a long time, but I remember thinking, okay, it's competent, unlike the, the Monks on the Wooden Planet, which was just ludicrous. But it wasn't quite there. And then Fincher and Fox made a very, very crucial error, what I believe in Alien 3. Very crucial. So Ferguson is out after four weeks. His fee goes up every week after that. And they're going to keep rewriting. And there's other things that I'm not aware of. I mean, I'm sure these drafts are getting sent to, you know, obviously the producers who, as you know, would be Walter Hill, David Geiler, also probably Sigourney Weaver. You know, Weaver, she's probably also getting, she's privy to the script. She's probably by the third one. The only thing we know about Ferguson's script came from Sigourney. And she said she didn't like it because he wrote her like a pissed off gym instructor. That script never leaked. And that is pretty much the only comment about that one that I'm aware of. Yeah. And, and that there may be, like I said, that's why I'm saying there may be some, there's probably truth to that. But the point is, what's important is, is that she had, because actors, you know, they sometimes have say so and sometimes they don't. And so by the third film, they have to have Sigourney. I mean, that's it. She's going to, she's the star of the film. And so she's, of course, going to have her say so. So this is the crucial error. So Walter Hill, as you know, is a director, he's directed many films. He's also a screenwriter. David Geiler's just a screenwriter, but they're also the producers. So they were involved in the hiring of David Fincher. Well, they hire themselves to rewrite Ferguson. Okay. 
Now you have a problem. You have a young director who is, this is a big deal. His first feature is a franchise movie. It's not like he made some indie film and worked his way up. He's vaulted from Madonna music videos to the big stage here. So these guys are, you know, they're seasoned, they're older producers, whatever. On one hand, as producers, they've hired him. So he has to pay lip service to them on that level. But now they're writers and they don't necessarily, they should listen to him and his input. But it's like, who the fuck are you, you little punk? You don't hire the producers to write your script. You want the writers to be someone you can kind of control or at least work with, collaborate with. It messes up the power dynamic. Yeah, it's very unusual. And uh, I could tell you some other stories, but I'll, I'll spare your audience here. But they produce, and of course, I'm getting every draft. And, and you know, it's not kosher to be sending me drafts. These are highly, you know, they say highly confidential across every page and everything else. But their draft went kind of in a different direction. I'm sure they had meetings with Fincher or whatever. But it was, um, of all the screenplays I've read in my life that are going into production, it is the most amateurish, worst screenplay I've ever read in my entire life. And by far. It makes no narrative sense. David Geiler didn't do any writing. He died recently, but he's just he's just a massive drunk. Everyone knows it. And I saw him. I met him in person. I never met Walter Hill. By this point, you know, he's probably doesn't even really want to be doing it, but he takes the fee and whatever. And they write the script and it's so bad. And Barbara is sitting in the office next to Fincher. And she's really great. She went on to be big in development and then, you know, won an Academy Award for a short film. She's now the chair of NYU Tisch School. They are graduate film. I mean, she teaches film and story and narrative and they're talking and she's basically saying, look, I know someone who maybe could help you out here. I'm in Los Angeles. They're in London. So, you know, I'm reading the script. And so they asked me, David, kind of under, you know, cloak of darkness here to analyze the script. So I brilliantly analyze it, saying it's missing conflict, it's missing story, it's missing characters that were invested in, whatever, blah, blah, blah. It's a mess, basically. However, in that letter, I said, unfortunately, I really think that Walter Hill and David Geiler are just a couple of hacks living off their laurels in Malibu. But a personal letter to David Fincher. He shows the letter to Tim Zinneman. Tim Zinneman was the line producer, which is a big job. And he's the son of Fred Zinneman, the famous director from here to eternity and whatever. So he's, you know, he's big over there at Fox. And Tim said, boy, this guy really knows what he's talking about. So Fincher, again, under cover of darkness, he had a plane ticket on Virgin Air. He flies me over to London and we meet out at Pinewood. And, you know, I listen, you know, and I read the script and whatever. And this goes way back. And I rewrote the entire script in nine days without anyone knowing for free, for nothing. And we'll get into... I'll try to remember what I did, but uh, it was a lot. And so he then presents me to 20th Century Fox as his new writer. (laughs) Well, that didn't go over well with some people, especially Walter Hill and David Geiler. Because remember, as producers, the studio is um, beholden to them. And the reason they're beholden to them is because they kind of control Sigourney Weaver, if you think of it that way. They can manipulate her. Yeah, at that point, they they were quite close. Yeah, on a personal level as well, weren't they? Yeah, I'm sure. So... They're not happy about it, but you have to understand this thing has been fast tracked. There's a pay or play thing. We don't have a screenplay, and you're announcing this guy, Rex Pickett, who's never written a studio film in his life. He's not Larry Ferguson. He's your new writer. And let's back up a little bit. When I was doing, to show you how unprofessional Hill and Geiler were, when I was doing the nine day rewrite of the entire, I rewrote the whole script in nine days. Barbara was also Walter Hill's assistant. Walter Hill was saying to Barbara, here are David's storyboards for the action sequences. If you could write them out for me and put them in the script, I'd appreciate it. 
to a non-writer, this guy making six figures was farming out action sequences to my ex, now ex-wife. She sub-farmed them out to me. So while I'm rewriting the main script at <laughs> night, I'm putting his action sequences into words and putting them into his dreadful script that is being rewritten by me. So she was like a double agent, pretty much. Yeah, right. In a way, she was. But she was. But in all fairness to Barbara, she was doing it not for me. She was doing it really for. She knew that I could bring character and story. She did it for the project. She did it for Fincher. She knew that David, if he watches this, I just you know say you know that you know I love the guy. He's a great guy. You know I, he can be tough on crews and whatever. He's a great visual stylist. But he knew David knew he wasn't brainwashed by Barbara. He knew the Hill Guyler script was a piece of crap. It was. It made no sense at all. So, you know, they're not happy about that. But Hill and Guy are are Hollywood veterans. They're still going to get the producer credit. They've got other projects, especially Walter Hill. So they they accept that there's a new writer. But then something else happens. And this is where the drama gets is a couple days later. Now they're bringing in and Fox did not like that. I was, you know, and I remember Michael London and, and another VP in charge of production went on to become a heavyweight. They buttonholed me in a pub in London. You know, how dare you come on this picture? Who do you fuck you think you are? You know, whatever. I said, what do you mean? Fincher flew me out. You shouldn't have had a copy of that script. Just like, you shouldn't even be here. Hostile conversation over drinks then. Yeah, right. Exactly. Again, but I bring that up because not about the project, about the politics. So behind the scenes for all the fans there who are immersed in the characters and immersed in this you know, this world in the future and everything else, behind the scenes, there are major politics going on. And that's kind of my story. But, you know, they got over it because Fincher is now calling the shots. Okay. But the studio decides to replace the line producer, Tim Zinneman. So they fire him. So I'm officially hired. I get 10,000 a week, 1,500 pounds a week. Back then in 90, was a lot of money, Aaron. You know, and they hand it to you in cash and you have these wonderful big bills over there. You have to buy new wallets for them. They're really, they're really quite wonderful. Those 20 pound notes are, are lovely. You know, Tim Zinneman is fired and he had a pay or play deal and they weren't going to pay him. They were going to screw him out of his pay or play deal. So what Tim Zinneman does that no one understands, he had kept the letter that I wrote Fincher where I called Hill and Geiler hacks living off their laurels in Hollywood or in Malibu. He sends the letter to everyone at 20th Century Fox. Hill, Geiler, Joe Roth, everybody, they all call their lawyers. I'm assuming, I'm two days into being the official writer. I assume I'm gone. They know I'm married to Barbara. I'm assuming she's gone. No, they keep us on. But Hill fly. he just immediately flies out of London. He's just ripping mad that somebody could say that. Forget the fact that I said it in a letter addressed to David. He passed it to Zinneman. And Zinneman's got, he's just going to throw, he knows he's just throwing a monkey wrench into the wheels because they're screwing him out of his pay or play deal. Had he not sent that letter to anyone, yours truly would probably be, that script probably would have been the script of record, if you want to know the truth. And, and Fox played a kind of a, and I would have stayed on. So I did stay on. But meanwhile, Hill is gone, and, you know, there was a transition meeting with Geiler. You know, he was aware of the letter, obviously, and he didn't bring it up. 
And there were heavyweights in that room. David Fincher, John Landau, who's head of physical production at Fox, who went on to produce Titanic and the Avatar movies. He's James Cameron's producer. Michael London was in there, went on to produce Sideways, which he never should have got the credit for. But that's another story. And I remember Geiler was just wanting, all he was talking about was um, prostitutes in Thailand and how wonderful they were. And he went into detail. This is supposed to be the transition meeting from one writer to the next, the passing of the torch. And that's all to heavyweight. We're on a crunch. You know, you have to realize the all these departments have now started to plan for a world of prisoners and, and, you know, whatever, a penal colony and whatever. And probably shooting in six weeks as well. Yeah, you're right. And this guy's talking about hookers in Thailand. Yeah. And he, he, went, he went on at length about it. And we're all just sitting there like, OK. And he had nothing to say to me at all. He had nothing to say narratively and everything. And part of the reason is, is he had nothing to do with the screenplay. Hill was the one who did the rewrite. But even he, and he told Barbara this, he goes, you know, when I need dialogue, I just turn on the TV and I just pull dialogue from whatever shows on TV. This is how unprofessional these people were. You're talking about a $60 million movie. Today, that's a $150 million movie. It's a huge film. And this, this is how cavalier they, they didn't care and give a shit. And Fincher knew that. He cares. That guy really cares. And he's, he works hard and he's, he's very demanding and he's, he's a real visionary. I mean, term, a visual stylist, you know, and, and I felt sorry for him that he was thrown into this, you know, mix. Anyway, Geiler leaves ultimately London too, you know. And so meanwhile, now they don't fire me because they don't have another writer and David wants me and I've rewritten it and they've all admitted it's a great script that I really did a great job. But, but now David wants to go in for revisions and, and other stuff. And, and we can talk about the script and my memory won't be real great about it, but I tried to create divisions at the penal colony, you know, between Dylan and the administrators, the prisoners, and obviously Clemens, who was kind of a neutral character as the medic and, and you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, you know, tried to bring character to it because remember, I couldn't change like, you know, I couldn't create whole new action sequences because it would throw the production into problems. So I had to stay within those bounds. And actually, I've often said the nine-day rewrite I did, and then then I worked with Fincher for a solid month, met with him probably every other day. And Fox was hassling us for pages because they were freaking out. And back then, it was before, you know, text and cell phones and stuff. So we had these things where he would ring twice and hang up and then ring again, and then I would pick up the phone because it wouldn't be Fox. We had We had this kind of system going because... Fincher didn't want them to say, we don't like these pages. We're bringing in somebody else. He want, he wanted to have it. He wanted to give me that space. And so that he could create the script that he wanted from the time that they hired him and brought him on. And, you know, the working with David was, it, it, it was great. I mean, he, you know, I don't like to be critical of him, but, you know, he was young. He doesn't come from narrative uh, very much. You know, he would say certain things that to me as a writer, like, you know, he handed me uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's book, The Seven Stages of Dying. He says, well, we need Ripley to go through the seven stages of dying. And I'm like, what does that mean? It didn't mean anything to me. And I read the book, but, you know, he's kind of trying to impose. He wanted something deeper, some something subtextual going on in there, you know. But for the most part, you know, he was going along with my nine-day rewrite. That's what we were coming off on. But meanwhile, in the background, Hill and Geiler are renegotiating their contracts. And Dave and I worked hard. We presented the script to Fox and they approved it. I'm going, my God, I'm a made writer. And even though I wasn't going to get a credit, and that was illegal because you can't negotiate a a WGA writer not to get a credit in a contract, but they did. But more than likely in arbitration, you know, I probably would have got the credit in arbitration. But Hill and Geiler know this. Remember, their egos are still simmering for this month that we're doing this. And they're the producers. And they bring them back. They give them more money. 
and the script went out to every department and there was literally celebration. Oh my God, we finally have a lockdown script. We can now just go to town, work our asses off and, you know, take every scene and break it down in terms of costumes, production design, creature, you know, making whatever, blah, blah, blah. Hill comes back to London, struts, you know, they're getting close to, you know, to shooting actually. And he recalls the screenplay from every department. This is 200 scripts and has it shredded, the script, I believe in front of Fincher. And Bates said, you're you're doing our script or work, you know, you're off this project. And I'll never forget the last time. So I'm gone, of course, now, you know, and because uh, the studio is going to default. They're going to capitulate to Hill Geiler. And I remember going out to Pinewood and Barbara's clearing out her desk. And I saw David and he was sitting in his office. He looked very dejected, to say the least. Just glum. We had worked really hard for a month on that. And bear in mind, there was the nine days where I'd completely rewritten it to give him a new foundation, you know. And I said, David, if you go back to that amateurish, unprofessional script, I promise you it will be years before you direct again. But he had a very powerful agent and it was a big deal. I think, you know, I don't know how much he got, a half a million, you know, it's a big deal. And I actually was right. It took five years before he did seven after Aliens, Alien 3. Five years. And this guy's a hot director. And uh, because the film was a bomb when it came out and it was, you know, it was critically savaged. You know, I know that you guys are going to give me a different perspective on things in there. But the truth of the matter is, is his hand was they pulled his arm behind his back and they did a half Nelson on it and they did it strictly. They did not do it for aesthetic reasons. They did it strictly out of ego. You're making our script. And they they left and let me just sit there and write and toil and write with David and meet with him and everything else. And they knew all along what they were going to do. And you say, well, why didn't the studio usurp Hill and Geiler's power? Because as you said, Hill and Geiler were very close to Sigourney. And Sigourney, because she... The provenance was with Hill and Geiler to the very first Aliens, which was super successful. And Aliens, even though I don't like the film that much, was even more successful commercially and and critically as well. A lot of people like it. She would have walked. And the studio plays the power game. So they had to capitulate to Hill Geiler on this absolutely amateurish screenplay. Fincher was just shaking his head. Like, I got to direct that fucking piece of shit. And he made, he made the decision to stay on. And he, he considered walking from the film. But um, because remember, I came out there. Yes, Barbara introduced me to him. But I not only wrote a, an overview of the script that he knew was dreadful. I also wrote some sample scenes for him of stuff that I would do. And he really liked the writing. And then he flew me out there on his own dime. You know, he took a real risk with me. And you know what? It really paid off because... I can tell you right now, it's a way better screenplay than that Hill Geiler script. And everyone knows it to this day. They know it. And I'm not saying that out of any arrogance. I don't need to prove anything. I've gone on to have my own level of success. I just feel sorry for the project. The characters are so much better fleshed out. But that's the politics of Hollywood. And they went back to that script. And from that point on now, I would only know from the movie because Barbara's, of course, she's immediately fired because Hill sees her as a traitor. Well, And and to this day, you know, Finch is still won't talk about the film or work on any features and stuff, anything to do with it. You know, there's a whole thing around Charles de Rica, the producer of the, the home releases, trying to get hold of Fincher to get him involved, you know, with the behind the scenes stuff. Think about what I just... Yeah, well, no, I'm, I'm saying I, I exactly understand, you know, it was a nightmare. Right. First of all, he's, 
He's brought in at the penultimate moment. They fire a director. You know, he completely upends what it, the whole script is about. They bring in writers, you know, Larry Ferguson, you know, Hill and Geiler, and then finally me and whatever. You know, what he went, the stress that man was under and everything else, the shoot was miserable, long, long days. And of course, probably shooting some, some uh, you know, nights for day and whatever, blah, blah, blah. And then I know that they, David can be, he's very demanding. That's why he's a great director. I know that they did reshoots on the film and that those were expensive reshoots. But, you know, you've got people saying, no, we're not going to go over budget here. And they're also looking at the film. If they don't think the film is going to really do anything box office wise, they don't throw good money after bad. They just finish the film and get it out there. This is his first feature. It's a big feature. And I remember saying to him, you know, I don't do it, David. I said to him, just one on one, don't do it. Don't not do that Hill Goddard script. It's going to ruin your career. And I think he, he got thrown into big studio politics at a very young age, and he handled it well. He did, but I don't think he had, that was a big decision to walk from that film at that moment. And you have to realize he's a huge fan of Alien and Aliens. He's a huge fan of these films. He wants to work with Sigourney. And you just sort of, okay, I can make this work visually, but no, you know, unless, and this is why I go back to Alien, because I do think it's a great movie is if, we, if we're not invested in the characters, we don't care. So I don't care how great the pyrotechnics are, the special effects, you know, and the chasing down and the, and the, the incredible creature and it morphs and it grows bigger and all this stuff that honestly I could care less about. I don't write that kind of stuff. I brought character to it. I brought human emotion to it. You know, there was even a love story developing between Clemens and, and Ripley in my script. You know, there was something starting there, you know, and I thought Dylan's stuff about, you know, I'm trying to remember, but, you know, his kind of progressive religious ideologies, whatever. I mean, it brought the kind of gravitas that, that Fincher wanted to it, but we can still have the alien killing people and on this plant trapped on this planet, which is what everyone wants from, you know, from the standpoint of it being commercial to a younger art. So, you, you know, David's always one, if you look at his films, he always wants to have it both ways. If you watch Fight Club, for example, yes, he does have a film that has fisticuffs and other stuff, but there's other stuff about, you know, consumerism in there. He's got other themes going on. He's got other themes going on in Seven, even though it's a serial killer genre, one of my least favorite genres in the world. You know, in fact, if all the serial killers from serial killer movies and serial, serial killer novels actually existed on the planet, there would be no humans left except serial killers because there have been so many of them. But even that, he he found a, a kind of, I actually think it's one of his better films. And, and, you know, some of his other films, you know, can be blatantly commercial like Gone Girl. But he does try, his great films was his last one was Mank, about Joseph Mankiewicz and the real, who was the driving force behind, you know, Citizen Kane. I thought, you know, it was, it was an underrated movie, although it did get a lot of Academy nominations. David's always wanted to have films be, have a commercial appeal, but also have you know, a critical appeal to have some depth, you know, some gravitas to him. And, and he knew if he had to go back to that absolutely miserable, I mean, the Hill Goddard script isn't even, it isn't even bad on a superficial level where you actually have, you establish the characters, you establish the planet, Ripley crash lands, and now there's a quandary. No, they, they can't even deal with the basics of character development and character conflict. And he knew that. David knew it. And that had to have been an incredibly bitter experience for him. It went on, you know, for, you know, because there were reshoots and everything else. And then he's got to do the marketing and publicity for a film he doesn't even believe in, probably. And that's a painful experience when you have to go. But you have no choice because it's a big movie. 
can you imagine a red carpet premiere of a film you don't believe in and people walk out and go, good work, David. Nice work. It's not the same as when, you know, there's laughter and massive applause and they're hugging you. You know, you feel jobbed. You know, you were paid well, but you feel jobbed and you wonder, you know, where your career is going to be. And David really, he kind of, you know, really grew up on that film. People say that Spielberg grew up on the set of Jaws. Now, he'd made one feature before, well, two features before that, you know, Sugarland Express and Duel, the TV movie, which was a great TV movie. But on Jaws, the problems on that film were massive, you know, and budgets and going over budget and everything else. And Richard Dreyfus said, you know, he grew up on that. He became a man. And I think Fincher became a man on on Aliens, but uh, Alien 3, I'm sorry. But what he went through and what I saw and what I witnessed, he really, really held it together until Hill and Geiler pulled a power move on him. They threatened to pull a Sigourney. I'm, I'm inferring that, but I'm pretty sure I'm right because the studio would have, they would have overruled Hill and Geiler on the screenplay and they would have sided with Fincher if they didn't have to pay lip service. It's, it's who has the power in the Monopoly game and their power was Sigourney. Fincher doesn't have that power. His power is he's the director, but he's also young and it's a first feature. And his power is they couldn't, they couldn't replace him at this point. If they want a movie and they don't want to pay Sigourney $7 million for a film they have to scuttle aboard. So Hill and Geiler played a very dangerous game, in my opinion, by letting us write that script for a month, then waltzing back into London and saying, no, and literally had it recalled and shredded a script that 20th Century Fox had approved. It's surprising it gets made at all with this kind of schoolyard antics. Yeah, and thank you. That's a that's a great adjective there, Aaron. And it's um in fact, you know, I've made two feature films. They're indie films, but they were hard, took nine years out of my life. If you've ever been in the making of a film, you wonder how any film ever gets finished. But this is a big movie, there's a huge fan base, and obviously I had David there for all the things that had to do with the xenomorph, you know, with the face hugger, you know, with Geiger. You know, that's Fincher's world. His storyboards were just wonderful. They're easy for me to take storyboards and put them into words. I mean, you know, you're just handing me a blueprint to that. That was easy to do. But to bring character to it, that's harder to do. And that's, and obviously later in life, that's what I'm known for with Sideways. They're, it's a totally character-driven movie. It's a comedy. I mean, Alien 3 wasn't going to be a comedy, but, you know, I tried to really find the inner lives of some of the characters, especially Ripley giving her an inner life because we know that she's going to die in this one. You know, she's, you know, through, you know, whatever self-immolation and she's going to die to kill the alien. I know she ultimately lived on. I haven't seen the film since then because my experience with it was, you know, I was paid well, but I saw I had never worked on a big studio film before. And the politics to me were just despicable, despicable. I saw behavior that was puerile from big, big people. In fact, the youngest guy there, David Fincher, was the most mature. In fact, in, in all fairness, I told him, you, you, David, you shouldn't do this film. He didn't walk. You know what? That, that showed real maturity. He said, you know what? I'm not, I don't want to be the guy who they can then go around Hollywood and say he bailed on us at the because he couldn't handle it. I think that's one reason he hung on there. But he had no choice but to shoot this unshootable screenplay. And I think, you know, they actually fired him like three times, something like that, and then rehired him. What, during the production? During the production. Yeah, well, that that's just bullshit. 
they might threaten to fire him or he may have had, you know, David can have his moments. Let's, let's be honest. And for good reason. And maybe there were actors saying, I can't work with this guy. And, you know, we're going to fire you, David. And maybe he walks, you know, for a couple of, you know, that, that happens on a lot of films, but to actually fire him and bring in another director. I, I don't buy that, but you know, I don't know where that's coming from. I'm fairly sure that was that was what Fincher had said himself as part of why he hated it so much. He's exaggerating. I think I think they probably threatened to fire him, but did they actually fire him? I mean, they may have fired him in Aaron in post production. Okay, you're off the film. We're editing the film. That I believe directors are often taken off films in post-production, but not in production. So it's possible that that happened. And then they brought him back on and then, you know, argued he wanted more money. So they gave him some more money to do some reshoots and whatever. But at the end of the day, and this happened to me on my second feature film, there was a problem with, actually, if you want to know the truth, it was a hair in the frame. You know? And the only way to solve it was to do an optical and it's 16 millimeter. And I'll never forget this guy saying to me did at the optical lab, he goes, you know, Rex, I don't think anyone's going to notice it. I know you want to get rid of it, but I can't take a sow's ear and make a silk purse out of it. And I always remember that. So let's go back to the Hill Geiler script. That is a sow's ear. I don't care how much you reshoot it. I don't care how much talent David brings. And he brings an enormous amount of talent. But that screenplay, you know, writers get fucked over in Hollywood. They get replaced and everything else. And there are bad films that make money and then nobody cares. But the truth is, if it's not in that screenplay, it's not in post-production. You know, you you face what you've given birth to, you know. I mean, there's just, there's no fixing a film in post-production. You can do a lot with music and cutting and whatever, but there's only so much you can do to, to put the Band-Aids on and save it. I've seen it a million times. You start cutting it down. You've seen films 70 minutes long. They might have been two hours long in the cutting room. And suddenly there's 70 minutes. They keep, I'd rather just see the two-hour lousy picture and see where they went wrong than the 70-minute atrocity that they ended up with. But, you know, it's, it's who has the money, who controls it. And this is 20th Century Fox. They control that movie. They control its destiny. So, yeah, I bet they, I bet they did fire him two or three times in post-production. You know, I can imagine when you're in, sitting in the editing room and you have problems and David wants to reshoot for good reason or he wants maybe to bring in somebody else to rescore the film or whatever it is. And we don't want to give you the money for that. Fuck you. Get out of here. It's like, you know, and then, okay, bring them back. You know, I think that was one of the times that he talked about was, was during the editing. Yeah. How the fuck it even got released. But then again, you know, one, one of the things, there's a quote from one of the Fox producers. I forget who it was, but it was something along the lines of we could release a film of a guy pissing on a wall for two hours and call it Alien 3 and we'll be fine. So, you know, it, it sort of shows the studio mentality. You know, I love that quote. I might have to use that. And it's, and I could tell you some other quotes. And that's exactly, you have brilliantly underscored exactly what the attitude of Hill, Geiler, and everybody is. It's a third in a franchise. The fan base, they're going to go. And we're, it's just, but you have to understand, Fincher sees it as his first feature. He wants it to be better than the first two, or at least equal to them. And to realize he's dealing with, a deck of cards, a screenplay, he knows it's never going to come up to that. He knows it before he even starts shooting the film. But that's the studio, that's the the cynical, almost nihilistic studio mentality at that point. You know, and they don't even know when to, I mean, take, you know, here's another example, The Hangover. You know, the first one was actually clever for about half an hour until it went off the rails and it was a huge hit. By the time they did the third one, they had no screenplay. Just go out and make it, call The Hangover, and it just makes no, and I watch it because they basically ripped off sideways, you know. 
four guys instead of two go on a bachelor's party to Vegas instead of wine country. Everything that could go wrong will go wrong. They totally ripped off sideways, but that's their mentality, you know, whereas if you take Alexander Payne, you know, he hasn't done a sequel to sideways because he hasn't been been ready to to go up against what was a, you know, a great film. And it's, you know, it's now iconic and everything else. Although that could easily change, you know, with New Zealand or something, you never know. Whereas something, especially when you get into special effects movies, they think the studio, you have to remember, and a famous director said this to me, and I won't name him. He said, Hollywood is the only place where the CEOs don't even know how their product is made. And and it's true. You know, I mean, I'm not saying in other, other worlds, you think the CEO you know, really rose up through the ranks. But these people have come in from other places. They couldn't make a film if their life depended on it. But they kind of know how to put elements together and stuff. But a really good producer, if you go back to really producers who knew how to make their product, you know, they would understand what a film needs or or whatever. And, you know, the studio also has other things too. You know, remember, they've got a release date plan. They've got marketing plan. They've got to meet these deadlines and they figured, you know, okay, if, if it didn't work or whatever, we'll milk something out of it and we'll move on. We, you know, we're doing 20, 25 films a year. Of course, the studios don't do that anymore. You know, and we've seen it with many franchises. They shouldn't have gone on, but they kept going on. They kept sapping, you know, draining the blood out of it until there was nothing in there. And, you know, if there is a fan base out there that want to go to it that aren't demanding, then uh, they'll go to it. I remember when I saw Alien 3, in the theater, it made no sense to me. It was actually the script that I was hired to rewrite. I mean, I know they did bring another writer on the set to punch up the dialogue, you know, whatever. But the truth of the matter is it was basically the Hill Geiler script. And it, the film made no narrative sense to me. It was just, you know, some set piece scenes that Fincher did a great job on. But he knew the film. As a, I mean, there's no question. I, and I don't mean to say this to your fan base or whatever, but of all of David's films, it's without question his worst film. I mean, there's no question about it. I don't think even the fans would argue that. Oh, really? I mean, we're at this point where it's now a lot more appreciated. And I think a lot of that is also due to the fact that the nightmare that the production was is far more well known. So there's a level of understanding going off there. I think it's a lot more well known now. Oh, yes. (laughs) Very well more known now. And it's like you were saying as well, you know, the, the finished product deviates very little from that first draft. Walter Hill and David Garner's first draft that you were rewriting. So from first draft to finished, you know, on the celluloid, there's not a lot of difference. Well, let me, let me tell you a story here. And if I'm getting too far afield, you know, of you know, the theme of your uh, great podcast or whatever, but think about Tim Zinnemann and that letter. They fire him. And now just out of, I don't know, petulance at a very high level, he sends that letter. He's held on to this letter that was just written to David. You know, it'd be like my talking to you and I was just saying something casually about somebody, you know, they're really a piece of crap and, you know, don't listen to them or whatever. But if you put that in an email and sent it to them or whatever, you know, you might, and if they're a powerful person, you know, and I learned my lesson there on that, I suppose, but never in a million years would I think that David would show it to Zinneman and that Zinneman would be fired and that his act of vengeance would be to send that letter out that then goes to Hill and Geiler that then is becomes like the creature inside them that is growing and growing as we're rewriting. And then they come, and I, I don't mean to be metaphorical here, and it just explodes. It's not about the project. It's not about the movie. It's about their fucking ego. So let me let me just tell you about Sideways. Sideways went out to my unpublished manuscript to publishing and film simultaneously. 235 rejection letters in publishing on three separate sets of submissions. And in film, I don't even know how many, hundreds. Nobody wanted it. 
But one of the submissions my agent made was down the hall at then Endeavor, now William Morris Endeavor, to Alexander Payne's agent. My agent had a nervous breakdown and left the business. It's sitting an unpublished manuscript on piles of novels and screenplays at Alexander. And he has a, an assistant named Brian Beery. And Brian Beery said, okay, what's next? Uh, sideways. And he reads it. And he goes, whoa, gives it to Alexander out of the blue. I'm nowhere. I'm about ready to you know, put a gun to my head. I'm literally nowhere. I'm out of gas, everything. I get a call out of the blue from my then agent. Alexander Payne just got off a plane. Sideways is going to be his next. This guy, Brian Beery, just happens to read it. What if Brian Beery had been, for example, Mac's wife, who told me to burn Sideways? She told me to burn it when she read it. She would never have given it to Alexander, but Brian did with a ringing endorsement because he he loved it and he loved the characters. And, you know, half a billion dollars later with DVD and everything, how could 500 people be wrong and wondering? That's how fickle that world is. I'm convinced there's 100 screenplays, at least within 10 miles of Beverly Hills, that if you put the right configuration of talent to, you could have Oscar winning movies. And then we all know the movies that get made that shouldn't. But my script would have been made, and I'm not saying it would have been genius. I don't know what it would have been, because remember, a script is just a blueprint. But we know it would have been an infinitely better movie. It would have had more character, would have had more it would have made more narrative sense. And it still would have had all the action that, you know, the fan base really craves, you know. But it would it would have had a I think it would have had an it had an emotional component to it with Ripley and other stuff. Because I'm known for, you know, dialogue and character and all that other stuff. But because one guy one embittered little man who's fired and he knows that this is just going to make everyone just, it's just going to blow everything sky high. Basically, I don't know, maybe he thought David got him fired, which is not true at all. And I don't even know why the studio fired him. Maybe they just wanted a new regime, you know, whatever. Maybe Hill Geiler wanted him fired. And that's why, I don't know. But if that letter hadn't been sent, Alien 3 would be a different movie. It would have been the script that little old Rex Pickett who'd been following this saga from coke-crazed Vincent Ward and his monks on a wooden planet to Fincher, you would have had a different outcome. This one, and that in Hollywood, and this is a big movie, you wonder why, how could that be possible? Well, everything I've told you is absolutely true. I've not fabricated anything. And it's unfortunately how Hollywood works at that big level sometimes. And, and Sideways had one guy not read it and his sensibility being akin to, you know, the sensibility of, of mine, you know, and then he passes it to Alexander with a ringing endorsement. He's not going to read an unpublished novel. He doesn't have time to do that. He's hot after the film election. He's hot in Hollywood. And he's getting big novels and other stuff sent to him. And he reads it and he agrees. And and that's a long story. And that will also be in my autobiography. But ultimately, it's made. And the rest is history. All hinged on that one guy. It hinged actually on my agent who took it down the hall to pitch it to Alexander's agent who said to him, he's not interested in these little indie things. Take that thing out of here. Take it out of here. Literally, there wouldn't be a sideways. And, and my agent, Jess Taylor, said, no, he should read this. This is right for him. OK, fine. Put it over here. Put it over here. That's Hollywood. And that's also a true story. And there's even more to that story, you know, than I'll go into because I know this is about alien. But, you know, I feel for David. It, it, he David did everything right. You know, he brought in, he took a risk to fly me out there. He took a risk to present me a nobody to Fox and also being the husband of his assistant. They probably thought he was crazy. He took a risk to alienate Hill and Geiler and he did it for all. I hope he's here. I hope he's listening to this. He did it for all the right reasons. In my, and I've, I've had a lot of time to look back on it. And then he just got, he got shafted. 
because of ego and politics had nothing to do with aesthetics. Rex Pickett's script sucks or whatever had nothing to do with that. It was totally had to do with ego. The ego of one person, not even Geiler, because I don't think Geiler cared. Geiler had nothing to do with their script. He took a co-credit on it, but he was basically in the pub just getting smashed. It was mostly Hill. And Hill, I've already told you how unprofessional he was. He was taking dialogue off of TV and he was farming out action sequences to my ex-wife, who's Fincher's assistant, on a $60 million film. And then she's sub-farming them out to me. And I, and I did them for free. Not even a credit. Yeah, no, it did go to arbitration, but you know everyone raised their hand. But I won't. We won't talk about WJ arbitration. You know, so. so with the rewrite, you have to stick to that structure. You have to stick to the, the bones of the story. But you know, when when you sat down to go. How do I fix this while working within that rigid, you know, that rigid story structure? How do you identify what you want to do, what you can change to improve it? Well, first of all, what was what was that quote you had about the studio? We can just piss on a wall and call it alien. I mean, this script, and I'm not saying this because I mean, Guyler's dead and Hills, he is truly over the hill living off his laurels in Malibu now. But so I don't care what they think of me. The truth is, is, as you, you can tell from me, I, I love movies. I have a very critical sensibility. I'm looking at a screenplay that, and I, and I don't say this out of any bitterness that, that, you know, I got removed from the project or anything else. It just, it was unbelievably amateurish. So I'm looking at it. If you're going to box me in, whatever, you have to understand, I'm writing from the blank page every day to take an already existing screenplay with already existing characters and already existing scenes and just have to go inside and do microsurgery and create those characters inside. Yes, there's gonna be some collateral damage, you know, down the road, but I figure I can fix those things. I've said to many people when Alien 3 comes up, I said it was actually the easiest script I've ever written and it was the hardest. It was easy from the writing standpoint because of those boundaries that I had. That actually keeps me in, you know, in other words, Rex, just invent a new world for us. Well, then I'm going, oh shit. I got four weeks to invent a whole new, you know, then I would have freaked out. But by having, here are your characters, you know, here's Ripley, here's whatever. I just, honestly, I just tried to start making sense out of it, Aaron. I mean, literally just making sense out of a script that makes no sense, whatever. It was hard. It was the hardest script because of the politics. You know, Fox demanding pages and calling me at all hours of the night and freaking out because, you know, they're so close and they need a final script that's going to be approved by the departments. And, and they're sitting out there and I would go to, I'd go, would go out to Pinewood to meet David, often would meet him at his, his rental in London. And these people were waiting on this thing. They had nothing to do until they've got a blueprint. They have nothing to do. And they know it's going to be crunch time when finally the script is there. And, and Dave and I delivered. We moved. We really moved fast to really improve that Hill Geiler script, which was in some ways worse than Fer Ferguson's script was really cold. You know, Hill Geiler, their script had a little bit of input from Fincher, but it was so poorly executed, so sloppily executed. And for good reason, when you find out how they worked. And I know how they worked because Barbara was Walter Hill's assistant. <laughs> so I know exactly how he worked because he he told her. At one point, you know, he he did write, you know, he wrote The Getaway, you know, the Steve McQueen, Alan McGraw film. You know, he, he did have some chops in his early years, but by now he's just jaded. He doesn't care. He's like the studio exec saying, you know, we can just piss on this and slap Alien 3 on. We're going to take our big producing fee. And oh, by the way, our writing fees too. 
And we don't even give a shit. We can handle the critics and everything else. And the fans will go to see, you know, the xenomorph pop out again and just start, you know, rampage and killing these prisoners and freaking out, whatever. And and who cares? That was their attitude. Who the fuck cares? Well, I cared. And I'm not even a sci-fi fan. And I actually cared. And Fincher actually cared. And you know what? So did Barbara. The three of us really cared. And nobody else, nobody else cared at all. So for me, it was the easiest to write. On the other hand, the studio politics made it really hard. And at the end, of course, you know, with Hill Geiler playing their power move, you know, I've often, I have a lot of little adages about Hollywood, you know, for instance, you know, hope is hell in Hollywood or between enthusiasm and money lies the Grand Canyon. I've got these, but on this one, it's, you know, life is not a, is not a meritocracy. It's just not. What got made for your fans who are watching this, Alien 3, that film that you see would have been a different film had it not been for the ego of one one man who just couldn't handle one line I wrote in a letter, not to him, somebody else that then got past him. That is the true story. And going into some of those changes a bit. So in the disclaimer at the start of your draft, you mentioned Walter Hill as having mandated certain changes that you had to make on the second half of the script. Can you remember what much of this was? Like, what were the most significant changes in that second half? I honestly, sorry, I, I can't, Adam. It's so long ago. I'd have to, you know, I'd have to look at their script. I'd have to look at the script I wrote. You know, they if, if they were changes, trust me, they weren't coming from Hill and Geiler. They were coming from David Fincher because he was driving the ship at that point. I was only listening to David Fincher. I never met Walter Hill. And like I said, all I learned from Geiler was, you know, where to get hookers in, in Thailand. <laughs> and I actually, I read this draft. It's available on our, our website in our download section for anyone who's interested. I'm not sure how far your rewrites with Fincher went beyond this draft. But the most significant things I noticed is there's a scene in the film where Ripley goes to try and find the alien. This scene's a little different in yours where they find the ox and they find where the alien originated from. And they also find Golic. And things go on with Golic a bit longer where he's... It seemed like you were insinuating egg morphing where he's being transformed into one of these alien creatures or he's just cocooned and it's left uncertain. But that was kind of the connection I made with the director's cut of the original alien. And there was another scene beyond just things going on further with Golic. Wasn't there another? Oh, so you changed Clemens' backstory, I think. Yeah. Where he he had had to euthanize his wife, euthanize his wife and uh, unborn child because uh, she was in a vegetative state. I guess that that was a lot wildly different <laughs> in terms of. Um... Well, again, I'm trying. To, I I don't know where that came from, but um, I, I I could easily imagine that I'm I'm trying to find the inner lives of characters, make you feel something for them. I mean, that's what I'm trying to do. And even though it's, you know, it's a sci-fi film, it's going to have its its requisite, requisite amount of action. I still, I know I'm repeating myself, if you don't give us three-dimensional characters, you exclude the audience. And so that's what I tried to do. I know that I tried to really get into the divisions inside the prison colony between, you know, there are different factions in there. Then you've got the administrators and, um, you know, and there's rebel rousers in there. You know, I, I'm trying to create conflict. You know, conflict equals drama equals comedy equals resolution. I mean, this is like standard stuff that Hill and Geiler just don't even understand because you don't see any kind of narrative trajectory in their screenplay at all. You just don't, other than the xenomorph appears and, you know, bursts out or whatever, and then it starts its rampage. And that's probably all they think they have to do. 
And I want to know who's dying, who's being chased. You know, I want to know who those people are. Certainly actors bring some three-dimensionality, even to bad dialogue and whatever. But the truth is you can put Marlon Brando in a bad screenplay and it's still going to be a bad movie, albeit with him in it. But, you know, I, I don't remember those things, but that, Adam, is what I tried to do is I tried to get, you know, inside the characters and, and create backstories, create factions on that penal colony, because it would seem to me that there would be, you know, people with different points of view and, and that would bring by me conflict. And that conflict might ultimately result in a different approach to now what's happening. Or maybe I thought that when the xenomorph starts to really grow and, and whatever, that they would come together in some way. I, I don't know. I mean, that's as a writer, that's what I'm looking for is I'm looking for conflict and I'm looking for different ways of, of re resolution. I know that they had sworn a vow of celibacy, the prisoners. So a, it's not just some alien is arriving on their planet. It's a woman, you know. And so I played up that, which Hill and Goddard weren't interested in because they're too lazy. You really, you really upped up the religious aspect yeah. of it. Especially with Dylan going into like the books he was reading and how he came up with his like amalgamation of, of a religion. You had him invent it. Maybe as I said earlier in this interview, I read the collected works of Jung. Jung wrote a lot about Christianity and religion. And I'm very much interested in belief systems and faith systems. I'm not religious at all, but I'm interested in those things. And so it seemed to me that if they're there and they've taken a vow of celibacy and everything else, that you know they're out on a planet floating around and it's a penal colony with no hope of ever getting back anywhere, they have to have a belief system. And then I wanted to um, invent one that have, would have a rich you know, iconography. Honestly, and, and that would also just make their lives and their world, you know, make the, that world interesting. Let's bring you into this world that's interesting, that's different. And when the alien, you know, starts to make it, you know, you, you feel like these people's worlds are upturned and you care about them. I guess I know it sounds corny. I'm not trying to make people likable, but I'm trying to make you care about people. And you care about people who have, have points of view, who have a difference of opinion than other people. And these are all basic tenets of screenwriting, but they're not, they're not always easy to do. From a writing standpoint, though, I thought it was fairly easy. I, my, my imagination just went to these characters and I tried to imagine that world. You know, if I were on that world and, and I was adhering to some sort of theocratic idea or whatever, what would that theocratic idea be? We're in the future. I can invent a whole new religion if I want. And I probably, I guess you're saying, Adam, I sort of semi did. But, and, and David was, he was on board. All, that was all probably done in the nine days. That's where the real work was done was in those nine days. Well, bear in mind, nine days, that sounds like a miracle, but I've probably been thinking about it for a couple months leading up to flying me over there. I mean, Taxi Driver was written in 10 days and won an Oscar, but he lived it for a year in taxis and whatever, you know, it was a great, I mean, I don't, I think it's a great script, but it's a, it's a great directing and it's a great score by Bernard Herman. And of course, De Niro is brilliant in it. But, you know, you can write a script pretty fast if you have it in your head. And, and, and by having those boundaries of the, this scene and this scene and this scene, that actually, um, it's not how I would want to work. But if you're going to mandate those and you're going to pay me $10,000 a week <laughs> and give me 1,500 pounds and nice big bills with the queen on it. And the gold jaguar to ride in, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The gold jaguar. That was, uh, that was, he had a lot of stories, you know, about Batman and the Tim Burton film with Jack Nicholson. He had, I, I'll leave those stories. I mean, I think we can pretty much all imagine. He, he was, I mean, it's pretty cool. I come out there and they, and they officially hire me and I've got a, a jaguar coming to my place in, I don't know where it was in, I can't remember, Kensington or whatever, but, you know, and driving me out to Pinewood Studios. I, I felt like, you know, kind of a big shot, but at the end of the day, none of that matters to me. I don't care about 
money and agents and all that other stuff. I, I really, and to this day, I don't, I care about the work. That's what I care about is the work. And that's all, that's all Fincher cares about is the work. He doesn't care about the lifestyle at all. But, you know, the studio politics got the better of our ideas. And they went back to this very dumbed down version of Larry Ferguson's problematic script, I would call it. Have you had a chance to look at the screenplay of yours that's out there? Because I'm curious to know, like, if this was near the end of your time developing it with Fincher or if this was a little earlier in, in the process, like how far beyond this draft had it gone? Do you have a date? Do you have a date on the title page? Yeah, I'm just looking for it. It was January time. Yeah. Well, I was gone for the film, so that would have been the last draft we did. January 5th. I was removed right about that time. So that would have been probably my final draft. I remember I, I, I showed it to... At the time, I didn't have an agent. I had an attorney do the deal. And then I was when I came back, I was looking for an agent. Of course, I was one of the writers on Alien. So that's a nice calling card, I guess, on some level. And so I sent the draft out. But with that disclaimer, it's funny, that also got sent around that, you know, because the disclaimer shows that I had had access to early drafts of the script, which probably also angered, you know, Hill and Geiler, especially Hill, you know, that I had access to his drafts of the script. And I, I did, you know, there's no question about it. I mean, I can say it now because there's no, nothing punitive. I mean, I don't think it's, you know, it's like a felony or anything. I mean, scripts get passed around all the time, but, you know, they definitely went behind Hill and Geiler's back, let's put it that way, to get them to me. So I think that disclaimer said something in there, one of them and some people, I don't know, there was something in the press about it or something, you know, I don't know. Do you remember much about what Fincher brought to your draft while you were working on it with him, aside from the attempt to bring in the seven deadly sins? No, sorry, the, the stages of... Um... I think I said to David, because, you know, as you can tell, I'm, you know, I'm an intellectual, I guess. But I said, David, it's a monster movie. <laughs> but I did try to bring, you know, some depth to the character. But I thought that's... You don't want to force that issue. You don't want to impose heaviness on a screenplay. It comes from inside. You know, it's either there or it's not. And so I, I try to bring it from inside. David's real strength was really... Was in the, in, in the uh, action sequences. You know, he had them very, very storyboarded. And I remember being in his office and him taking me through those storyboards and sh- and they were very elaborately drawn. And, and you know, take, you know, he, I have to admit his his focus really was on those big action sequences. And I think one of the reasons he stayed on the film, aside from the fact that he didn't want to be known as the guy in Hollywood who was fired or however they were going to spin it, Fox would spin it. But I think he he really did see those action sequences and really wanted to shoot them. He really wanted to do them. I think when it came to story and character development, David just left it up to me. And, and look at what look at what he's done in his career over 30 years. He, do, he doesn't have a writing credit ever. And I'm sure now, David, he's, he's more narrative driven, especially when you see Mank, which I, was written by his father, oddly enough. I'm sure he gets involved, you know, like, you know, we need to, this scene drags on too long, or we need to, you know, punch up the conflict here. But I don't remember any of those conversations on Alien, Alien 3. I don't remember those. I think he just figured I was, you know, that's the stuff I knew. You know, you have to bear in mind, I'd written and directed two feature films. Barbara had produced two feature films, you know, which I had written and directed. I knew way more about, he didn't know anything about dramatic film writing at all. He knew nothing about it. And I don't say that to damn him with faint praise or anything like that. It's just the truth. He was a music video director when they hired him. Simple as that. And, and, and the biggest in Hollywood. And at that time, I don't think it's really true today. Music video directors, I mean... Spike Jones, didn't he come out of music videos? I mean, a lot of people came out of there and the studio figures, you know what? 
They're a great visual stylist because we need that from a director. And oh, we'll, we'll figure out the screenplay for them. I think that division of labor was there. And I think that David really kind of left the characters up to me. I think he liked what he, he would have been critical if it was something he didn't like. So I remember he really was bringing stuff about the action sequences, maybe tightening the screws down on, on certain scenes, maybe if my memory serves. But I don't, I mean, with David, he'll probably hate me for saying this if he ever watches this. I mean, I've seen him in a room scream at people. I mean, in a small room at the top of his voice, but he never screamed at me. Never. He treated me with, with unbelievable respect. He treats writers with, with real respect. But I think when he gets on the set, he has to be more of a general. And, and you know why? Because they'll walk all over you and he, you won't get your way. And I'm not endorsing that. And, you know, I'm sure he's, he's not, you know, he's not always like, he's a great guy, really. And, and I mean that from the bottom of my heart. He's really a great guy. But he treated me with unbelievable respect and the risk he took to bring me out there and everything else. And he saw that what I was bringing to the script was the kind of character development that it required from the one that I'm coming off on. And I'm coming off of the script, so I'm, I'm constrained by these things. And that actually is a help to me. If you, if you tell, if, if I say to you, you know, paint this wall and paint it exactly this color, you don't have to think. Now, I, of course, had to think. But if you say, no, let your imagination go. Now you got to figure it out and you have to figure out if they're going to like it or not. That's not a good analogy, but in a way, knowing that I was constrained by, you know, set piece scenes that couldn't be changed because they're already, you know, tunnels were built and you know what I mean? There's, there's stuff that was already done. And what am I going to do? Throw them out and they're going to have to build all new sets. That just was never going to happen. And I think also Fincher knew too that, that Rex has made film. He knows film. Maybe not big studio sci-fi special effects films, but he knows film, he knows filmmaking, and he had respect for that. So did Barbara. She knows a lot about film and filmmaking. We'd spent 10 years making two films. So, you know, to answer your question, I don't I don't remember any heavy discussions about narrative and character. One of the things we're curious about too is what if you didn't have those constraints, right? I know there were some constraints with sets being built and such, but if you had total creative control with the writing, can you think of anything else significant that you would have changed about the story? Again, I'd have to go back and look at the script, but I, honestly, I don't think there would have been a lot. I, I, I remember now it's coming back to me. I remember really enjoying creating, you know, those factions in the, in the prisoner colony because I, I really felt like I was um, almost getting at society today, you know, between different parties and we don't need, want to get into politics here and different religions and stuff. So here it was in kind of a microcosmic form on this planet. And I think I was playing on these, you know, divisions in the, that we have in, in society today that, uh, you know, imagine on a planet like that, I mean, you could have a riot in one group ideologically wipes out another group. And that's kind of where we are today, even at this very moment in the world. These are basic human needs is wanting to have a belief system. And Christianity doesn't do it for us anymore, for the most part. And so people, you know, trying to have belief systems and they're all based on one thing, which is really what happens when you die. And I think it comes from Jung. And I, I was really able to say, here's an area where I can really... Um, I don't, I don't think there would have been much I would have changed, to be honest with you, Adam. I, I really I, I really went inside and, and tried to, you know, if I didn't have the constraints, I mean, gosh, it might not have been prisoners on another planet. It might have been a whole new population of people. I don't know what it would have been. But I actually, in a, in a weird way, because it was um, such a short stint, and I write very fast when I have ideas, I don't think I would have wanted. Um, I think I, I actually enjoyed the constraints. I think they they made my my life easier. So, okay, there's going to be this set piece scene and there's going to be this big scene at the end with Ripley and whatever. And how do I build to that credibly? And that's what I've always tried to do. There's a word I use a lot because I give talks on writing and stuff is verisimilitude, the ring of truth. 
how can, and yes, it's sci-fi, so there's suspension of disbelief and you got a monster and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But how can I make it credible? How can I make these people real? And that's what I've always tried to do is, is make characters real. And, you know, people to this day talk about Paul Giamatti in Sideways and, you know, he's so relatable and whatever. And it comes from me. You know, he's a real character. He's got a real inner life. He's going through things that we all are. And why wouldn't people on this planet still be human beings? Make them human. You know, Phil and Guy are just, to them, they're just like set dressing. They're just like extras to them. They're not real people to them. I think one of the Often critical complaints was, you know, why do we give a shit? Why would we give a shit about a bunch of bold pommies running around some tunnels that we don't even know the names of? I think that was one of the, you know, the big criticisms. I agree. And I'm not saying, you know, my script would have won Academy Awards or anything, but I know that at least I tried to make you care about those characters. I don't care if Golik, Dylan, I think some of the administrators I didn't like, you know, I can't remember their names now. It's funny you say that because Ralph Brown, who played... Aaron in in the film he's very outspoken about his time on the film as, as well and he he talks about the draft him being given you know Aaron is this competent heroish kind of guy and then suddenly he finds another script in his hand where he's he's a moron and jokes being made at his expense and I'm fairly sure you know that script that he talks about is yours yeah it was in fact Aaron Brown Barbara and I, the place we were living at in Kensington or whatever, he took our place. We handed him the keys. We left and he came. And I, and I said, have you read my script? And he was kind of, kind of, he'd just gotten off a plane. I said, you should really read my script, whatever. They're going back to the original. It's really bad. I remember saying that kind of almost. And it was really not because I wanted to stay on. I wanted a credit or whatever. It's just because I just couldn't believe they were going back to that script. And I, I know I've said it twice. I'm going to say it again. I've read a lot of screenplays that have gone into production because I'm always interested in what's going into production or what even is a hot script that's being bought for a lot of money. And honestly, the Hill Geiler script, especially they're coming off another script, you know, rewriting isn't that hard to do, guys, is the most amateurish, the worst script I've ever read in my entire life of a film going into production, not maybe some friends send me something bad. But I mean, at that high level, they'd already had eight writers getting six figures. I mean, I think it's my understanding that five million was spent on screenplays and Rex Pickett only got 40 grand. That's all I got. They got me for cheap, but they, they spent millions until they finally got what they wanted. Yeah, he's suddenly he's presented. I mean, he's he's a smart guy and I'm sure he just saw, my God, this is dribble. It was it's just pure dribble. So you mentioned coming off a previous script, do you feel that they, I don't know if you've read the final shooting script that they had, the one that was really only like nine days after yours, I think. Do you feel they adapted some of your material into that one? You know, back then I was part of the arbitration and I might have looked, I think I remember, I threw my hat in the ring on the arbitration. I had no hope, but I was, you know, legitimately hired by 20th Century Fox and, you know, whatever. So that's all a matter of record. Uh, so why does it throw my hat in? I remember I did look at that script. It's a long time ago, as you know. And if they did use anything, I remember thinking, you know, I don't have a great case in this arbitration. I mean, you could contrast and compare because you have both drafts. You know, you could do an exegesis. But, you know, I, I didn't just work four or five weeks with David before I was, I was canned, you know, because of Hill's ego. But also that was the two weeks that I did the complete or nine days where I did the rewrite, but also everything leading up to that from Vincent Ward. And then what I was getting every Larry Ferguson draft. He went, he did two drafts in his four weeks that he was there, whatever. I was really, you know, primed for this. I was like, really, you know, I trained to be ready if I got the call, 
You know what I mean? To go to war with David, you know, I know it's, now it's another bad, a bad analogy today too, but, and I was, I mean, I, I'd seen the whole evolution of this thing. And I kind of, I remember with Barbara, which is like, my God, the incompetence at such a high level. Is it possible? I don't know if you, have you read the Monks on the Wooden Planet script? I've never been a fan of Vincent Ward's tape. Yeah, he's, he's long gone too, but. You know, I mean, I just couldn't believe oh, John it. Fasno. John Fasno wrote it with him. That's who it was. And there was Gibson's draft, which eventually got turned into a novel, too. So his has had a bit and more. And an audio play. And, a and comic. an audio play and a comic. Yeah. So his has had a bit more fanfare, yeah. Well, maybe I should do that with my draft. Right. So, I mean, you know, give, you know, William Gibson, I haven't read his stuff. I mean, he, that guy's an acclaimed science fiction writer. But for whatever reason, you know, the studio didn't like his draft and they went to the next writer or whatever. Mm-hmm. Trust me, Gibson would have gotten at least back then three to four hundred thousand for sure would have gotten that kind of money. Yeah, I remember. I mean, he's a, he's a celebrated science fiction writer, you know, and maybe O'Bannon did a draft in there somewhere. There were a lot of attempts. He didn't he didn't do a draft. OK, so Hill and Geiler also. Yeah, they were stepping on the house fell, fell, out, too, right? yeah, fell out with O'Bannon pretty much. And O'Bannon had to fight to get his draft in front of Scott because Hill and Gyla went and did some crazy ass stuff. I've never read it, but there's there's claims that they did some time travel shenanigan drafts, including like Genghis Khan and stuff like that. Well, I mean, in one in one sense, I suppose I was lucky because near the end, obviously now everything is getting pushed and moving very fast. In the early going, they're just playing around with different people. But, you know, Walter Hill's a bad dude. I mean, he's just he's, he's just not fun to work with. He doesn't care. You know, when I said he's a jaded hack living off his laurels in Malibu, that's exactly who he was in his early, in his late 20s, 30s. You know, he, he made a couple hard times with Bronson. It's a pretty good film. I'm did not a big fan of The Getaway, you know, or the, I can't remember, The Driver was another film he did. But, you know, The Warriors, you know, he, he directed some films that were, you know, sort of interesting. But by the time he gets to Alien 3, he just doesn't, he just cares about the money and the deal. And that's sad because you had in, in David, a 25-year-old who just wanted to make this the best. And he told me, very ebullient, he can be, and, and I can be that way too, you know. We really wanted this to be the best of the three aliens. And I'd say, David, we could make this the best if we really invest the audience and the characters. And he agreed, whatever. But there's the studio politics. And the studio politics are kind of like Italian law. They get built and then they get built on top of and then they get built on top of. And now it's like it's like Windows as opposed to Mac OS. It's unwieldy. So you've got Sigourney and you've got Fox and you've got Dan O'Bannon and you've got Hill Geiler and, and they're big people and, and they're, people are trying to figure out how we move with this. It's like a big skyscraper that's, you know, tumbling, teetering up in the air. And uh, at the end of the day, um, art, I say that word kind of punctuation marks, but art didn't win out that uh, power, power won out. And that's really sad. And it's sad for the fans. Oddly enough, I'm glad to hear that the fans think it's one of the worst of the the films. And I'm sure that's why Fincher doesn't want to talk about it, because he got shafted by it. You know, had he been able to do my draft, I think it would have been a worthy successor. It would have been different. It would have been a different film, because as we know, the first one is, don't really have great memories of the second one, but the first one is a great premise, trapped in the spaceship, and then there's something that goes wrong, you know. And so the fact that, you know, she's rocketing through space and crash lands on a planet, and now you can, you're in the future, you can make the planet whatever you want. What a great idea. What, what a great opportunity to let your imagination run riot. And then to bring in people who have no imagination and all they talk about are hookers in Thailand or sub farm out action sequences. These are people who don't care, just truly do not care. 
you know, at that level, I mean, there's just something offensive about it to me because I don't look guys. I mean, I'm being, I'm known for being personal. I don't care about money. I really don't care about any of that stuff. I just care about the work. That's all I care about is the work. And and that's all I cared about with David. I didn't care. I know I kind of joked about my 20 pound bills, you know, which were kind of nice to get because I was broke at the time, but I didn't care if they gave me a credit or anything. I just knew that if we made it a good film, that somewhere down the road, we would be rewarded and people would would thank us. And wow, that was a great film. And that that's the big reward for me is that people thank you. And, and I'm sure that Fincher is like me. I saw the film once. I kind of had to. I wasn't really interested in the other scripts and what happened that much. You know, Barbara was, was kicked off, you know, after, and bear in mind, she'd been on the project for almost a year through Vincent Ward and through David. You know, you kind of want to distance yourself from the mess. And that's why David probably doesn't talk about it. He just wants to distance himself from what was an absolutely miserable experience. And I think at the end, tried. I know he, he got money to do reshoots and stuff. You know, he really tried to, um, you know, like I say, make a silk purse out of a sow's ear, but you can't do it. Well, I imagine he probably wasn't too happy about the reshoots either. And speaking to fan reaction, personally, when I first saw Alien 3, I didn't I didn't exactly like it that much. But eventually they, they did have an alternate cut, which is known as the assembly cut, which came out with a Blu-ray set. And this was worked on by Charles de Lazarica, who did all the behind the scenes material. And I believe he reached out to Fincher to see if Fincher wanted to collaborate with him on this assembly cut. But Fincher just didn't have any interest in, in revisiting it at all. That blows me away, Adam, because an assembly cut, which we might also call a director's cut, too, we could say. I mean, obviously, I'm assuming it's longer, right? It is. And it's better. It's it's pretty much universally regarded as a better cut of the okay. film. And, and probably that's another reason why Fincher was fired or quit or whatever, is because they were probably demanding he cut it a certain way. Why would you want to go back and look at that footage again on, on a movie? Back then, it had been a movieola or whatever. Why would you want to go relive this horrible experience? I mean, God. And, you know, he'd lived with it for so long. He knew that even if you go back in there and you make it better, it's just like, you know, I think he just thought, I'm going to cut my ties here. Kind of like a bad marriage. Move on. Yeah. And if you if you cling to that person in the past, you're, you're not going to open the door to the next person who's coming to you who might really change your life. And, and for Fincher, it was seven. And again, I hate serial killer movies. I can't stand them. And I think that was a terrific film. I really, I think the acting is great. Fincher's direction is just fucking brilliant. He just wants to distance himself from that film. I did everything I could. I'm done. I don't want to hear about assembly cuts. I don't want to hear about any of this fucking shit. And look, you know, he hasn't done another alien. He, you know, he hasn't, he's tried not to repeat himself. If you look at his career, he's tried to do different things in his career. I don't think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think he's really done sci-fi ever again. I don't think he has. Yeah. Curious case of Benjamin Button kind of has a supernatural thing, one going back in time and forward, but it's more of a literary device. You know, I mean, yes, it's supernatural, but it's not typically sci-fi, which is futuristic, dystopian or whatever. I know for a fact it was, you know, it was a miserable experience for him. And he just gutted it out, took it all the way to the end, gave it everything he could, got whatever reshoots, you know, he could get, argued for certain cuts. He's not the only one. There's other directors who've done it too. Alexander Payne on election had to fight and fight for his cut. Even Quentin Tarantino on Reservoir Dogs, he fought Harvey Weinstein tooth and nail for that cut. And, you know, he got the cut he wanted. And, you know, but, you know, he's not the only one. You know, Jane Campion, others have done it. But at a certain point, you just, you still are dealing with the images that are on that screen. You can't create new images. You can't go back and shoot the whole film over again. You just can't. I think the only time it was done was on Back to the Future. 
You know, they shot 90% of the film, realized Eric Stoltz didn't work, and they reshot it with Michael J. Fox and the rest is history. But that's, you know, with Steven Spielberg as your executive producer, you know, you can do that. But yeah, I I just think he was a a bitter experience and that he had to, I I, I like David. I mean, we're very different. He comes at film as a visual stylist. and I come at film because I've directed too. Nothing like him, of course, and he's famous and huge and everything. But I come at it from from writing, from characters, from ideas, from dialogue. I mean, come on, dialogue pulled from TV, from watching old Gunsmoke shows. <laughs> That's what your your fans were listening to. Well, it was interesting what you said too about the dangers of producers being involved with the creative process because of the egos there, and they're the ones that are putting forward the money. So unless they're familiar with the creative process and constructive criticism and critique and stuff like that, a lot of them just can't take that well. And so it hampers a story from being the best it can be. And I think that also plays into a lot of reshoots. Like more often than not, when the reshoots are significant, it's almost always for the worse. And it's usually producer input. Yeah, I mean, but bear but bear in mind in this case, the producers are both Guyler had written some scripts, fun with Dick and Jane in the 70s. You know, he had a little kind of a He's a, quite a schmoozer, you know, he's a charmer, you know, and, and a complete drunk. And, and that isn't just from me. It's from people who've written about him and stuff. And Hill had written scripts and directed films. So they're not just producers per se, who I think of as people who find the money and put the people together, then let them go make the movie. If it gets out of control, then they got to come in and, you know, rein people in. That's really a producer's job or a studio's job or whatever. But these guys, you know, they're also writers, you know, and you think, they would come in and and they, they would really care. But I think by this point, they just had a film that was a payday for them if it got made. And they saw it that way. And that is truly cynical. And you have to understand, too, by the time Fincher comes on board, if they scuttle the movie, they're going to lose $15 million at least because they got Sigourney on the pay or play, which I believe was $7 million. And they, um, you know, you've already, other people have pay or play contracts. Plus, you've spent 4 or $5 million on screenplays already. Not to mention all the stuff at Pinewood, you know, all the stuff that they've been doing out there. I, you'd be scuttling 15, and that's a, 15 million is a lot of money to have nothing. So at a certain point, it's like a DIY project. I need a place, you know, to take a pee. So I got to make sure that toilet works, but I'm, I'm deeper into it and the plumbing isn't working. And, you know, you, you keep going deeper. You keep digging this <laughs> hole deeper and deeper. Uh, films are like that. They become a money pit. It's like a bad DIY project. And then you think, okay, we'll solve it by bringing in somebody else, you know, but it was a crucial, crucial error. And how Hill and Geiler came on as the writers, it, it was probably their decision look, David, don't worry. We'll rewrite it. You know, I'm the guy who wrote The Getaway. I got this one. Don't worry. I got this one. Meanwhile, he's over there farming out action sequences to David's assistant, and he's pulling dialogue from Gunsmoke episodes. He's watching in a hotel there in London and, you know, living the life in London. Think how expensive it is to keep people there. You know, big expense accounts. And they have, you know, I'm sure they had their gold Jaguars driving them to the set and everything else. The the thing that came last for them was the actual where you almost got the fact that writing was like it was like an afterthought for them when it should have been to them and to the studio. It should have been everything. But think about this. Think about, you know, like the VPs in charge of production, Michael Lund and this other guy. Think of them saying to Hill and Geiler in a meeting, your script sucks, motherfuckers. But you know what? If Hill and Geiler were just Aaron and Adam and I'm the producers, your script sucks. You guys need to, you know, get on your big boy pants and, and dig deeper. Otherwise, we're going to fucking replace you. Can you imagine having that conversation with Hill and Geiler? No, they're already cowed by them. That's why it was a mistake to hire them because you can't be critical of them. You know, they're scary dudes. You know, they're powerful people. 
they should never, ever have been brought in to write. And I don't know. I'm sure it was their decision. And I don't think that, you know, David being new on the film was going to challenge it. But once the draft started coming in, he and Barbara having talks, they had dinner together. And Barbara, she's so smart. She's going, David, this script is terrible. He goes, yeah, I know. It really is. What am I going to do? And thus the conversation, well, you know, I know somebody. He's a really great writer. He's not done this before. And that was the story we told. And then, well, have him write some scenes. I write some scenes. Well, these are pretty good. Have him write an overview of the script. So that was a big thing to send me Hill and Geiler's script. I mean, it's like sending me classified documents, you know. I mean, I'm serious, you know, and I'm reading it. I'm going, what the, in Santa Monica, you know, what the fuck is this? I can do better with this with, you know, one eye and, you know, half drunk. I mean, I'm not joking. It was, it was terrible. And so I, you know, I wrote a really brilliant critique of it, you know, but even if I hadn't said that, you know, Hill and Geiler were, you know, a bunch of Hollywood hacks living off their laurels and, you know, Malibu, just the fact that I wrote a critique and it was dated when they were the hired writers, that alone would have been sense them. Forget you know, the personal barb, you know, that was, you know, the Karari dart that was unintentional, unwittingly directed at them. But that was a crucial error. And film sometimes can teeter on that one little thing there. And I consider that to be crucial. And and it led to, you know, my being hired because the script sucked. And then Hill saying, no way. I mean, think about it. I thought I'd be fired two days into being hired when the letter was made public to everybody. I mean, the head of 20th Century Fox had my letter to David Fincher in his hands. Think about that for a second. It may be the most famous thing I've ever written since Sideways, before Sideways, according to my then agent, but to my detriment. But if that letter just hadn't been sent, Hill and Geiler were going to still get co-screenwriting credit with Larry Ferguson, even though I had completely, I made them look good for free and anonymously, but their ego couldn't handle it. They were never involved in any more after this as well, you know. It was just the names on the screen, the credit. Well, behind the scenes, I mean, you don't think that I'm the only one who knows this. I mean, I know the the inside story, how I came on board and everything else. But I'm sure they knew that they were, you know, who would want to work with them. I mean, I don't know what credits they get on, you know, how many subsequent alien, you know, whatever films there have been. I haven't watched, I haven't watched any of them because it, you know, honestly, it might've even changed my life in a way because, and I mean, to get personal here, but even if I didn't get credit, but everyone inside Hollywood would have known that Rex came in and saved this debacle. Okay. I would have probably been getting offers to write, rewrite sci-fi films. Rex, bring in Rex Pickett. He, he brings character to your sci-fi. It might've changed my career in a strange way. Think about it, you know? Yeah, it's, it's just, you know, one of the, you know, there's a lot of films where the, there are these stories. There are a lot of stories about many films. I don't know all the stories and how they ultimately, you know, got to where they are. And, and I'm sure one thing Fincher learned on that, and, you know, I'm not in touch with David or anything, but Barbara, by the way, is very good friends with him. He Skypes into NYU all the time for her. They're very close to this day. He feels no, no bitterness toward her. Or any, she did everything right. I, for little money, did everything right. And David did everything right. You know, he just, the powers that be just, just crushed him. They just crushed him, you know, but I think he, you know, he looks back, I'm sure on that experience. And he probably in his contracts, you know, is getting final cut, you know, he he's getting say so on final say so on who's going to, I'm sure he brings the writers on board and, you know, in whatever, uh, for instance, take Gone Girl. He got the novelist to do the adaptation, and that doesn't happen very often. It's becoming a little more common, but back in the day, it was just, you just didn't do that. You went and hired a guy who did, or a woman who hired, did adaptations. And she said, I've never even seen a screenplay before. And David said, here, here's some screenplays. 
And she, she did the adaptation. I mean, I'm not a huge fan of it. It's kind of a lurid film, you know, that goes into the Grand Guignol. But it was a huge hit. And now he hired her to do, a, I don't know, rewrite Strangers on a Train or something. She's suddenly a screenwriter making big money. But that's the kind of guy David is, you know, on um, what was the film with Jodie Foster where she's a panic room. David pitched to the studios. He wanted to shoot it with only flashlights. Seriously, no, no lighting, no, you know, like lighting that would support those flashlights or whatever, you know, that you would have to do uh, just literally just light it with flashlights. There's a big studio movie with a big star. I don't know if that was shot back in the celluloid emulsion days or if it was digital, because if it's digital, you could probably almost do it today. And they turned them down. But that's, like, you know, he, he's always he's trying to experiment with, you know, with the medium. And he's just, you know, there's a lot, lot to admire with David. He's taken a lot of chances. He's taken a lot of risks. I mean, look at um, House of Cards. You know, he directed the first two episodes. He got that made. That was um, a game changer for Netflix to drop all those episodes one night. That changed the world of streaming. And David was behind that. He was the main guy behind it. I give him credit for a lot of innovation. Social Network is an extremely well-directed film, you know, and uh, even though I don't necessarily think Mark Zuckerberg deserves a film about him, but that's just me. I have a lot of respect for him. And I, I saw... When I left, Barbara clearing out her desk and we're saying our goodbyes that all the scripts had been shredded. And there he was. He's just sitting in his office, literally like this absolute despair, dejection. I've just spent a month and a half retooling an unreadable screenplay. And now you're going to go. It's like taking a dog. Here's where you shit. Don't, you know, whatever. It's like putting your snot right back in that shit. That's what they that's what they did to him. And, you know, he manned up and he directed it. And when it was done, it was two years later, it was the dreadful script that he knew it was, but now it was fully realized as a motion picture. And imagine that you think you can somehow take it and somehow transcend the script's horrible limitations. No, he, he, you just can't transcend a script that bad. It, a mediocre script, I think his, his visual talent could easily do it, but not a script that bad. I mean, I, I, I want to emphasize this is one of those sophomoric amateurish scripts I've ever read in my life. And I say that just out of, just from a critical, I'm, I'm far removed from it, three decades. I say that with no, with no animus to any person or anything. I just mean the actual script is never should have been greenlit for production. And that's why it was, is that they were the producers of record and they had Sigourney in their back pocket. It's as simple as that. And they needed something in front of the camera in six weeks time. Yeah. And it, it was a lot of pressure out there when you, you could really feel it because they were in the main office and there were other, they're actually kind of small offices and people would come in from other departments and where's this and where's that. And, you know, I, I'd be in a meeting with David, but somebody would interrupt in the meeting and, you know, from special effects and whatever, and kind of in some tense talks. What, so what's going on? Are we, are we really doing this scene? And, you know, what's going on? You know, do, do we have to change? You know, my God, I, I would never want to make a film like that because I would never want to direct it. I don't mind writing it, directing it because you're just juggling so many balls with so many different departments. You know, it really takes uh, somebody who, you know, really wants to do that kind of thing. And, and David has the creative ability and power to do it. But you know what? That screenplay, you, if you pour the wrong foundation, I don't care how beautiful the building, it's going to sink. And this has been absolutely fucking fascinating. <laughs> right. And enlightening and to go from just knowing two things about your time on the film, which is you pissed off Hill and Guiler with your memo. Well, sorry, your letter. Everybody calls it the memo to uh, people actually blame Sigourney for your removal from the film, actually. 
with it being her using an option from her contract to get Hill and Gala back. That's the other comment that is thrown around about it. The thing is, in, in a roundabout way, and I don't, I don't buy that, but the truth of the matter is, like I said, Sigourney's in Hill and Guyler's pocket, so they're using her as the fulcrum to get rid of me. So you see, I'm sure they're talking. I, I promise you that Sigourney never read my script, ever. She never read it. Yeah, I don't, I don't think she ever read it. I, I never got to meet her. And, you know, Barbara met her a number of times, said she was an absolutely wonderful, you know, lovely person, whatever. But, you know, sometimes you, if these are the people who made you, because, you know, I mean, she was already a coming star, but definitely Alien really took her to another level. She could really be, she could carry a film. Think about that as a woman to carry a film. And so she's got a lot of power. And if she thinks Hill and Guyler were the ones who made that possible, even though they didn't write the script, you know, Dan O'Bannon did, but maybe they were involved in the casting. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure Ridley Scott, he's big, so he was very involved in it too. You know, she felt she owes them a debt. She's going to default to them, not to Rex Pickett. Who the fuck is that? To this day, people say, who the fuck is that? No, I'm kidding. I don't think she, I don't think she saw it. It's funny they say memo because I actually thought it was a, a very well-written document. I, I, I looked for it. It's in my archive somewhere and I, I was trying to find it. I couldn't find it. I don't know if it's out there at all. No, never seen the full thing. It's just I, I do, I do have it. it. It's quite a, quite an incendiary tract, you know, because you know you can tell. I just, I tell it like it is, and so I did in a letter with all my powers of words <laughs> or whatever. You know, Tim Zinnemann, before he was fired, he thought it was a brilliant analysis of a script that wasn't working. I mean, truly, he did. In fact, he, interestingly, he's the one who ultimately got me fired, but he's the one who actually got me hired because he <laughs> supported Fincher because, you know, he's a studio, he was a studio guy. He supported Fincher in bringing me on. And that's site you are. Well, I don't think he set me up, but it, he didn't know he was going to be fired. And then suddenly he, yeah. he gets the ax and like, oh my God, you know, what can I do to destroy this? You know, it's like, you know, it's like Trump leaving the White House and he's just firing people and hiring other, you know, people. And he's stealing classified, anything he could do to just wreck everything because he's so, you know, bitter and, you know, that he's lost. And that's what he did. He just was so bitter. He lost that he just, okay, I'll just send this to everybody and just let the shit hit the fan. But you know what? Like I said, I wasn't I wasn't fired. They I thought I was gonna be fired immediately. No, they kept me on and under obviously a cloud because no one knew what Walter Hill was doing down in his villa in Spain, stewing down there, you know, conspiring and on the phone to Sigourney and let's see what this thing is. You know, all right, and I'm gonna march in in my cowboy boots. He loved his cowboy boots. You know, he's a little short guy, you know, marching in. All right, shred that fucking script. Which, <laughs> by the way, I wanna repeat. 20th Century Fox had approved the script for production. That's surprising that they wouldn't have gone to bat for it more than that they would have just capitulated, like you said. Because he would have said Sigourney's going to walk. And Fox would go, oh, shit. Okay, so we'll make a bad screenplay because, look, what is the power hierarchy here, really? At the top, it's it's the franchise, the name, and then it's Sigourney, right? It's kind of like a sideways sequel. You know, if you don't have Paul Giamatti, you don't have a sequel. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. You know, it's not like Batman. You can put anybody in the suit. I mean, without Sigourney, I don't know. I don't know if there's a maybe, you know, future aliens. Maybe she wasn't in them. I don't know because I haven't seen them. But without her in that third one, I don't think you have it. And so whoever has her, they control the narrative. The first three writers tried to do it without Sigourney. Oh, really? Did they really? On Alien 3. 
Mm-hmm. And she was an executive producer on four, uh, but she wasn't in the prequels. Okay. Well, it's, you know, again, all these politics I'm not aware of, but I'm, I am kind of aware of politics in Hollywood. It's possible she didn't want to do them initially. And then when they said, you know, Sigourney, have you thought about actually maybe being in this film? You know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. You know, and then her agent says, you know, they're going to get, they're going to pay you $5 million. And it was a big paycheck at the time, wasn't yeah. it? I think it was a record. Well, I mean, on Alien 3, it was $7 million. I mean, are you kidding me? Just go to your inflation calculator on Google. I mean, imagine that's probably got to be at least like $20 million today or 15 for a woman. I mean, that's a big payday for what? 12 weeks of work? I mean, it's like, yeah, you know, it's hard, but 12 weeks of work for $15 million and you're the star of the film. But, you know, I, I honestly believe I never met Sigourney. She seems like a smart woman to me. I, I bet she really did care. That was also a good movie, too. I think she probably cared. And you know, there's a lot of games that get played. And the last minute, somebody, you know, like Clint Eastwood said on Unforgiven, OK, I'll play the character. I'll play. He kept the option on that film for a long time. And yeah, I'm going to play him. I, you know, whatever. It's who's ever controlling you know, and I think that Sigourney really was the most powerful person in the equation, along with Hill Geyer. Those three were the most powerful. And how, how, whatever their mood went, that's where the film went. And if Hill and Geyer are angry, Sigourney's angry. So it's the politics of power and not the politics of aesthetics, where, you know, you would want a studio to say, you know what, fuck you, this is a better script, and we're making this script. And if you don't want to do it, Sigourney, you know what, we're just going to get somebody else, and that's it. And they just, they're too scared. They're, they're too scared of, of that, of alienating somebody like her. And also bear in mind, contractually, Hill and Geiler probably have final say. Maybe you can't even make Alien 3 without them being involved. You may not be able to push them aside. Or if you do push them aside, you maybe have to write them a huge check to push them aside. They may even have the rights. You know, I mean, I don't know that it gets into a lot of legal stuff and whatever. But at the end of the day, that was a ship that never should have sailed. Well, that, that is actually everything from us, Rex. Okay. Like I said, absolutely enlightening and fascinating, and I do appreciate you taking this time to come and fill in your part of this story. Yeah, thanks for reaching out, Aaron. I mean, it'll be in my autobiography, and you too, Adam, and it's another another side to the whole thing. I wish we could have just talked about the writing and, you know, the creature development and making. I did get to go to some of the departments and stuff. And I was going to try and fit in that last question, actually. So you saw beyond, beyond the storyboards, you saw some of the creature design and set work that was going on. during. Yeah, the I, don't, I don't remember it, but unfortunately, my God, that, you know, I know it's changed now, but the film craft out in, you know, the UK is, is the highest order. I mean, these people are real pros. And and when you're doing it in service to a script that bad, it's kind of, we have a term for it in Hollywood. It's called stuffing the turkey. When you're just, you know, you're you're doing this great work, but it's just going to go into a turkey. And, you know, maybe someday somebody will appreciate your costume design or your creature making or whatever. But the truth is they don't. They remember it from the first one because that's a a beloved film. But yeah, I I just remember all the people I met out there were just so professional on every level. And then you got these two Yanks coming in who are just so unprofessional on every level. And I, you know, I, I'm not saying that to, you know, poleaxe my career because I don't really care, you know, at this point so far in the past and everything else. And I can see why David just doesn't want to talk about it. It's easier than rehashing what for him was just a really probably, a, not probably, it was a miserable experience for him, I'm sure. Uh-huh. Yeah, that part is no secret. Yeah, I think so. Well, guys, thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you. 
And um, I'll be sure to include a link in the notes for this for your new book. Yeah, it's on Amazon. Just put, you know, you can find it out there. So, and if, and if there's any blowback from this, I'll be in New Zealand so on that one here. <laughs> no, I'm sure there won't. You know, it's uh, it's been a while now. It's been a long while, and and I told a truthful story, and the people that I've said negative things about. I mean, basically, two people. One is dead, and the other is now well in, in his 80s, and he's retired. He's not going to watch this or anything, and. What are they going to say anyway? But I, I kind of want your fans and the fans of Alien to know the really true story and how 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 Hollywood just works. Sometimes it's just it's really sad that it's uh-huh. that it should be about the art. It should be about the final film and the and everyone coming together. And sure, there's going to be differences, whatever. And then when you realize it's just about petty egos, that's sad. You know, it really is. It's a sad thing. You know. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that. All right, guys, take care. So once again, we'd just like to thank Rex Pickett for taking the time to come and give us that very frank and enlightening accounting of his time working on the film. Yeah, that was a wild ride, wasn't it? That was was incredible. You know, we talk talk about it, you know, being this film that people understand and appreciate a lot more nowadays. You know, a lot of people still hate it and quite rightfully, you know, it's a mess. As as we called it in the recent um, retrospective podcast you know a beautiful mess but a mess on the no beautiful disaster was it but a disaster nonetheless so i think this is our first time talking to somebody who was involved in the no that's that's a lie because we talked to tom and alec and charles i guess and count him yeah but from tom and alec's perspective you know they always say they hear about it being this disaster but that yeah they were like we're the only ones that had a great time on that movie yeah so to actually hear from somebody who <laughs> It might have only been a month, but it was a, a hell month that stuck about in, in Rex's mind. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really enlightening to actually get to hear firsthand from somebody who had experienced that. And he'll be writing about it a bit more in his memoir that should be coming out sometime this year. So be sure to check that out. Did he give us a date? I don't think he gave us a date. But, yeah, he'll be writing about this in, in his memoirs, his, his autobiography. And there's still a bit more to the story than we talked about in here. Um, some of the details that's going to make it a, v- <laughs> a very fascinating read. You can trust us on that one. Adam, do you want to dish the details on our socials and whatnot? Sure. You can find us on our main website, which is avpgalaxy.net, where we have all sorts of good stuff, information about the films, expanded universe, discussion message boards, as well as a number of editorials and interviews. You can also find us on all the major socials, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. If you just search AVP Galaxy or Alien vs. Predator Galaxy, you're sure to find us. Well, thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. Uh, If you have any comments, uh, any questions, please do feel free to let us know uh, in the comment section below or on the website or on the social post that you happen to be finding this on. If you are listening to a platform that allows reviews of the show, please do give us a review, give us a comment. Uh, It helps other people find us. And again, you know, if you know fellow AVP, or Alien specifically for this one. Fans out there who you think would be interested in in this episode, please do share it with them. It all helps us and we appreciate it. Yeah, definitely appreciate it and allows us to spend more time bringing you this content and doing what we love, which is diving deep into this franchise and exploring it. Well, thank you, everybody. This has been Aaron Percival. And Adam Zeller. Signing off. <laughs>